All right. Well, in 258 COVID calls, I have now done this twice. I'm not quite sure what the ratio is, but I've started off with the mute function uh, engaged there. So I'm going to take this from the top since we're about an hour, about a minute into this hour-long conversation. So I'm going to start again with an apology to my guests for putting you through the stress of waiting there while I was reading into a muted microphone. And let me start the broadcast again. I'd like to welcome everybody to COVID Calls. This is the 258 of the COVID Calls. COVID Calls is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today's a discussion of deep histories of disease in the COVID-19 era with historian Rebecca Weiner and physical therapy student Zoe Mendel. This is a partnership call with the LePage Center for History and the Public Interest of Villanova University. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As of today, April 13, 2021, there are 2,948,317 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States has now reached 562,608 from COVID-19 in France. They're reporting a death toll of 99,135, and in Japan, 9,393 people have died of COVID-19. The way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. I'd like to read an obituary now of an inventor whose work is highly relevant in the COVID era. The headline is Takuo Aoyagi, an inventor of the pulse oximeter, dies at 84. This was written by John Schwartz and Hikari Hida, published May 1st, 2020 in the New York Times. Takuo Aoyagi, a Japanese engineer whose pioneering work in the 1970s led to the modern pulse oximeter, a life-saving device that clips on a finger and shows the level of oxygen in the blood, and that has become a critical tool in the fight against the novel coronavirus, died on April 18th, 2020 in Tokyo. He was 84. His death in a hospital was announced by his employer, Nihon Koden, a Tokyo-based company that makes medical equipment. A niece, Kyoko Aoyagi, confirmed the death but said she did not know the cause. The pulse oximeter has become an indispensable addition to medicine, said V. Courtney Broadus, a professor emeritus of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Historically, patients were measured by four vital signs, temperature, blood pressure, pulse, and respiratory rate. It has become the fifth vital sign, she said, of oxygen level. While many coronavirus patients do feel chest pain, fever, and other symptoms, Dr. Broadus said the pulse oximeter has become especially important because humans do not sense a low oxygen saturation alone. Moreover, some COVID patients seem not to have other symptoms. As a result, when moderately or mildly ill patients test positive for the coronavirus, 
they may be sent home with a pulse oximeter so that they can track their oxygen level and return to the hospital if it drops. Mr. Aoyagi's contribution to medical science was built on decades of innovation and invention. In an essay about Mr. Aoyagi, John W. Servinghouse, a professor emeritus of anesthesia at the University of California, San Francisco, wrote in 2007 that Mr. Aoyagi's dream had been to detect oxygen saturation levels without having to draw blood. His early research tried to measure cardiac output, the amount of blood the heart pumps, using a method known as dye dilution, which involves injecting a patient with dye. Instead of withdrawing the blood downstream and measuring the concentration of dye, he attempted instead to use early oximeters, some of which were developed during World War II, to help military pilots breathe at high altitudes. Those early devices, which clamped to the ear, tended to be inaccurate, unreliable, and cumbersome. But Mr. Aoyagi was fascinated by the underlying technology, using two wavelengths of light, red and infrared, to measure blood oxygen levels. Hemoglobin, the protein in blood that transports oxygen, absorbs light differently when it binds with oxygen. But he soon ran into a problem. Blood does not flow smoothly like an open tap, but pulses through the body irregularly, thus preventing an accurate recording of dye levels. The problem, however, turned out to be an opportunity. By devising a mathematical formula to correct for this pulsatile noise, he created a device that measured oxygen levels with greater accuracy than before. Greatness in science often, as here, comes from the well-prepared mind turning a chance observation into a major discovery, Dr. Servinghouse wrote. Nihon Koden applied for a Japanese patent for its pulse oximeter in 1974 with Mr. Aoyagi and a colleague, Michio Kishi, listed as inventors. It was granted in 1979. While many companies sell oximeters today, all of today's pulse oximeters are based on Dr. Aoyaki's original principles of pulse oximetry, according to the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, which awarded Mr. Aoyagi its IEEE Medal for Innovations in Healthcare Technology in 2015. He was the first Japanese person to receive the award. Takio Aoyagi was born February 14, 1936, in Niigata Prefecture on the west coast of Japan. To Monshichi and Tatsu Aoyagi, his father was a math teacher, his mother was a homemaker. He graduated from Niigata University in 1958 with a degree in electrical engineering and worked for Shimatsu before joining Nihon Koden in 1971. He earned a doctorate in engineering from the University of Tokyo in 1993. Other honors include the J.S. Gravenstein Award for the Society for Technology and Anesthesia in 2003. In 2002, he received a medal with purple ribbon from the Emperor of Japan, given in recognition of achievements in the arts and academics. Survivors include his wife, Yoshiko, and three children, Yasutoshi, Midori, and Kayori. Okay, let me introduce my guests to you. Really been looking forward to this conversation today. Zoe Mandel is a senior at Villanova University, participating in the Health Affiliations six-year Doctor of Physical Therapy program through Thomas Jefferson University. In addition to completing her Bachelor of Science in Biology in May of 2021, she's currently a first-year Doctor of Physical Therapy student and will graduate from Thomas Jefferson 
in 2023. She's an active member of the Physical Therapy Society, an organization that raises money for physical therapy-based charities, and is an officer at Hands of Hope, a pro bono clinic located in South Philadelphia. Rebecca Weiner is an associate professor of history at Villanova University, specializing in the Middle Ages. Her research focuses on women, gender, and Christian-Jewish-Muslim relations in medieval Roussillon in southern France and Catalonia in eastern Spain. And she also studies slavery. She is the author of Women, Wealth, and Community in Perpignan, 1250 to 1300, Christians, Jews, and Enslaved Muslims in a Medieval Mediterranean Town, which appeared with Ashgate in 2006. Also, she is the author of numerous essays on medieval mothers, childcare, Jewish women, domestic service, slavery, and notarial culture in the Middle Ages. She's co-editor with Federica Francesoni of Jewish Women's History from Antiquity to the Present, which will be appearing later this year. Zoe Mendel and Rebecca Weiner, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. Hi, thank you so much for having us. Sorry about the audio glitch there at the top. That's um, once in a while I engage uh, that just before I get started in case I'm rustling around and make noise and um, forgot to re-engage it. So I'm sorry if I stressed you out with that, but it's really good to have a chance to speak with you. And congratulations, first of all, um, on winning the LePage grant, uh, Zoe and uh, Rebecca in support for this tremendous research that you've been doing and we're gonna hear all about it today. Before we do that, I'd like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation is there. Zoe, can I start with you, please? Mm -hmm. um, I am calling in from Center City, Philadelphia. And right now there is a uh, effort to distribute the vaccines going on. So there's a lot of um, public places where you can go and register, trying to get them. Um, restaurants are starting to open up, businesses are starting to open up, and it almost seems like people are ready to come out again and be, you know, part of a community. Um, of course, still with social distancing guidelines and masking in effect. Rebecca, what's it looking like where you are? Are you also in Center City or are you another part of the Philadelphia metro? I'm in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. It's an absolutely gorgeous day. A lot of people are out walking, wearing masks, socially distancing, and um, I have two children and my partner, and um, I also care for my mother, my wonderful mother who lives near me. And so we're starting to think about plans for the summer, right? Thinking about the fact that we may be in a fourth wave, we may not. Um, we've been very limited to what we've been doing because we wanted to protect my mother, but we're very hopeful about the vaccination process. So we're thinking, you know, staying safe, but also thinking about possibilities like, who knows, maybe swimming in the public swimming pool this summer. Mm -hmm. uh, I like how you're scaling your ambitions there a little bit, Rebecca. I think a lot of people have been had, that I've talked to have had similar kinds of conversations about how to, how to re-engage in something that appears to be normal activities we might have done uh, summer, two summers ago. Just to find out what's doing in terms of the educational environment, Zoe, what's the impact right now on the, on your, the way you can study, going to a library, being in the classroom? Um, how's the pandemic impacting that now? For this current semester, we are still completely on Zoom with the exception of a few lab days where we go in with mask and face shield um, and a lot of sanitation protocols. 
Um, we take our tests online. We go to lectures online, as I mentioned. Um, this summer, we're actually hopeful that we'll be able to phase in two weekly lab experiences where we would be on campus in person with a real teacher uh, for about three hours each of those days. So hopefully it's getting better. <laughs> Rebecca, same situation for you, all classes still online? Um, there are classes in person, classes that are hybrid, and classes that are online. Mm -hmm. And in order to make the in-person situation in, at Villanova as safe as possible, that combination has been needed, right? To have the space, to, to do things carefully, we, we've had to, you know, have all these different types of modalities. And, and Zoe, you, you've also been doing clinicals, but not right now, right? And you have going to the free clinic. Yeah, so we do have clinical experiences that I suppose would count as an on-campus time during those clinicals and such. We're still wearing all of our PPE and everything like that. Well, thank you both for that sort of orientation to how you're, you know, living with the pandemic right now and trying to accomplish your your day-to-day -day work and and studies and and teaching. I'm gonna kind of roll back in time a little bit with you to last spring, um, which in COVID time seems like a very long time ago, but you first, well, I don't know if you first met, but you in, were interacting in a class that um, you were in together as a student and as a professor. And Zoe, I want to ask you about this first. This is a class that was being taught at Villanova on the history of the Black Death. And uh, first of all, why would you sign up for a class like that? Uh, what were you looking to learn? And tell us a little bit about the class and the experience of it as the pandemic was unfolding. And then Rebecca, I'll turn to you to talk about it a little bit as well. Well, for me going into this course, um, it was my second semester junior year. I had planned on it to be my fun semester. I realized that doesn't sound correct given the fact that I signed up for this class. Um, it was supposed to be my semester of humanities um, that wasn't part of my typical bio curriculum. Um, and my mother actually took a um, Black Plague class when she was in college at Indiana University. So I was looking through the course catalog of history options. And this one, I was like, "Ooh, I would love to learn the same stuff that my mom did, you know, just a few years ago, as I'll say. Um, so I was interested in it because of the, the familial kind of connection there. But also just, it's such a specific topic that, you know, you learn two sentences in a general history course about it. And then it's kind of like, yes, it was catastrophic and we're gonna move on now. But I wanted to kind of look into all of the nuances located within it. So I was excited about that. Rebecca, how long have you been teaching this class? Um, I've been teaching this class since 2018. And I am by training initially really someone who focuses on the 13th century, right? So an earlier period. and. My research on mothers and on childcare providers was moving me more and more forward in time. And I was noticing that the economics and the, and the like were very important. So I wanted to, I was reading more and more about it and I thought, you know what, I'll teach it. I think it'll be fun and I think it'll be interesting, right? It was, it, it was a, a topic so much more distant from our reality in 2018, of course. And I thought, well, it's it's a possibility for me to teach about the 14th century and do it through this vehicle of global links through pandemic. 
So the idea for the course was well in place before the COVID-19 pandemic started. And I guess I've had other guests who were taking various history of medicine courses or teaching history of medicine courses as things were unfolding. But it must have been, Zoe, a pretty uncanny experience to find that, you know, you're in this class and then there's the headlines coming from other parts of the world and all of a sudden, here it is. Can you Describe a little bit of that feeling of sort of simultaneity of the headlines and then your reality of the pandemic in the now. And then you're also grappling with this intense historical experience of the 14th century. Right. It was definitely very surreal. And at times it was very stressful to be learning about, you know, um, what was happening, you know, in the 14th century. And then also it was happening every day with all these headlines coming in. And that was very much a time of, of panic um, last spring, I mean, and I'm sure during the Black Plague as well. Um, it was it was as if history was it repeating itself exactly how it was happening. Only now we have technology and news broadcasters to tell you what's going on. Um, two examples I can really probably bring up on that would have to be um, all of the racial violence that was happening at the time of COVID when it was starting and is still continuing today, of course. Um, and the Jewish pogroms that were happening in various cities during the Black Black Plague, especially, um, you know, with the, the rumors about well poisonings and all of that. Um, and then there was also all of the reports of rich people running to their countryside homes, which was mirrored by um, people from New Jersey going to their beach houses to avoid the cities where outbreaks were much worse. Rebecca, let me just bring you in on, on this. And same question, I guess, you know, it's a long distance in time, but Zoe's pointing to historical resonances that were speaking to her and I assume other students as well. How did you approach that as a teacher? So in general, when people are teaching about the Middle Ages, they're automatically sort of thinking about trying to link with more recent history especially now that the Middle Ages are not being taught in general in American high schools, right? So students are coming into the course without any background, right, or much because, um, for example, students are really interested in history and take the AP course in, uh, in European history that doesn't include the Middle Ages anymore, right? There's been this whole discussion about AP world history, which starts in 1250, but um, you know, essentially can sort of skim over the earlier period, right? So um, we're already trying to think about ways to connect with the history that the students already know. Um, and so initially for me, when the, when the news came, right, that, that something was happening in Wuhan, I actually said to the students, you know, this is terrible news, but keep track of it. Think about it, right? Think about it in terms of what we're reading, because when I had taught the Black Death course before, students sometimes had difficulty connecting to it, right? It just seemed like something that could never, ever happen to them, right? And something that they just could not relate to, right? I would talk to them about, um, you know, tuberculosis, or I would talk to them about um, immigrant communities or about slavery and disease, or right? It should try and get to something that I thought that they had studied and they could connect to. Mm -hmm. And so now what was happening is that we were starting to be looking at medieval discussions about issues that they were facing in their own lives. And that was 
Um, I mean, it was it was very dramatic. It made the course perhaps even more important to the students, but it was very hard, right? We we started a lot of discussions. Me saying, I mean, people use the shorthand trigger warnings, but I would you know say, look, I understand this may be an uncomfortable space for you, right? You may need to leave this class. You may need to come back and watch the recording later. That's okay, right? And students were doing these plague projects. So they had, they were deciding their topics as this was happening, as we were moving to Zoom classes. And so I contacted every single student, right, to make sure that they had the resources they need. We, we have an amazing, amazing library staff at Villanova and a wonderful, brilliant librarian called Jutta Zybert. And she and I made sure that every single student had the books or the, the online resources or everything for their projects. So it, it, it meant that I had that vehicle to check in with each of them to see how they were doing, right? And the class became part of that for all of us, I think. Um, that, I mean, at the end of the semester, one of the things I was the happiest about was that I had been in touch with every single student and knew where they were, what was happening, if they were all right, you know, they had drastically different circumstances, right? Some, uh, and Zoe had many different things she had to do herself. She had to get back to California, right? Um, she had to negotiate a space to be able to study. Um, but there were students that had even more on their plates, right? They suddenly were home with a mother who was working as a nurse and you know several little siblings that they were trying to take care of while they were trying to finish the semester. So we really were in touch and I'm still trying to stay very much in touch with every single one of my students because there's so much going on in their lives. And so much in what you were just describing there, Rebecca, is worth sort of noting and, and spending some time with and thinking not only about the pedagogy, but also, you know, as the pandemic landed in the United States, teachers at all levels um, who are now trying to figure out different ways to teach, different modalities, but also just to express care for students whose whole lives had been upended in that in that moment. So thank you for sharing that, and Zoe as well. Zoe, I, you mentioned a minute ago one of the themes in the class um, stuck with you about the violence uh, around the Black Death. And let's talk about that a little bit more. Uh, you know, how was that approached in the class? And that seemed to have sparked for you um, a, a deep interest that you then have taken quite a bit further. So talk to us a little bit about what kind of, you know, violence the Black Death provoked aside from, you know, the disease process itself, but more broadly in society that you were paying attention to in Professor Weiner's class. Well, I think a lot of it was just I, it wasn't so much the violence that interested me, but rather like the disparities in healthcare and how that kind of came about. And that's where all of my paper topics came from. But in the course, we talked a lot about how rumors were spread with who is more likely to have the disease, spread the disease. Um, there were all of the rumors, of course, with the well poisonings. And, and Dr. Weiner, you can help me with this um, because it is your course, of course. Uh, but there was just so much uncertainty and because there was uncertainty, people were making things up that they thought was correct and using any methods they could think of to really get their truth to be the truth. Um, and that included torture, that included false confessions um, and of course rumor spreading and all that. Um, 
And I did, I did see that in popular culture being replayed and currently even with violence against um, Asian people for being the ones who started the disease, brought it to America, um, which obviously isn't necessarily the truth, but it certainly seems as though that's the truth that people are trying to make happen. As a, a student also who's going into allied health sciences, it must have been interesting because a lot of times we sort of draw this hard distinction. Um, you know, there's the ancient and medieval world and they had their ways of doing things and we have modernity and we have science. Um, and yet watching the, this pandemic play out, of course, the science has been playing out in real time. I'm sort of curious as a student of science, how that looked to you as well. Yeah, um, it was definitely interesting. Um, and there are a lot of different uh, theories recorded about the plague. A lot of them have to do with things like bad air quality or religious purity and stuff like that. And I'm sure if you looked online in the right places, you could find those same theories about coronavirus being mm. part of an apocalypse or, um, you know, something to do with what you eat, something to do with your race, something to do with your anything really could probably be pulled to it. Um, so I would say as a student of medicine, it's just important for me personally to read the research, read the credibility and kind of remind myself constantly that it is a virus. It's not anything else. Um, it doesn't see, you know, color of your skin. It doesn't know who you are as a person. Um, it's truly just a virus. It's going to do what a virus does. Um, and so just kind of really playing into the science on that and uh, referring back to it when like politics or humanities and stuff like that gets involved and just kind of making sure you can compartmentalize everything appropriately. Rebecca, just turning to you, I wanted to hear a little bit more about your own research uh, and maybe tell us how this pandemic has allowed you to see that research differently. And I, and I ask that question, a lot of people might be surprised. Why, why would we ever think differently about something that's happened so deep in the past? But historians know we're rediscovering the past all the time. Right. And, but I just, I have to say though, you can tell what an incredible pleasure it would be to guide Zoe's research, right? You can see what an extraordinary um, person she is, you know, even as someone who's just finishing her undergraduate, starting her, you know, doctoral work in, in physical therapy. So just excuse me, just a, a small quell there, because I just- Appreciate it. One of the most wonderful things about being a teacher is having students like Zoe, and um, one of the bright lights at this difficult time has been working with her, and it's just a pleasure to be able to even reconnect with her over this. But so I'm a, I'm a medieval historian of women, and I was interested always in interactions between or in essentially the gender system of the region I look at and how Christian, Jewish, and Muslim women featured in it. And as part of my own interest in this work, I moved into thinking about motherhood and childcare. And I wrote an article, right, that came out a couple of years ago about the shift in childcare from um, elite, really, really wealthy, influential citizens in Barcelona looking for married matrons right, to make, leave their families and come and move into their homes to breastfeed and take care of their children. And I noticed that um, I was, I knew there must be some labor change, 
some change in mothering and childcare after the Black Death, but I wasn't sure what it would be. And I, there was a, a wonderful historian, um, Hernando Delgado in, in Barcelona, who had gone through all the notarial registers in the 1300s and noted every time a reference to um, wet nursing appeared. So thanks to his amazing intensive archival research, and he was really list, sitting in the archives for at least a year doing this, I was able to go to the archives myself and photograph all of these documents over two summers and then look at them and do a database of them and think about them. And I had been thinking about how Jews fit into this equation, but I'd also been thinking about, I'd already written an article about how Christianity worked, right? So I was thinking about the fact that the Blessed Virgin Mary nursing the Christ child is this hugely important image. And yet these very wealthy people are having a lot of times sort of lightly baptized, formerly Muslim or um, Tatar or really Mongol Asian steppe people who are enslaved nursing their children, right? So I had already been thinking about that. So right now, I'm, I'm not sure what I think, but I've been pondering it a lot given our situation where we have this huge stress on childcare, this huge stress on working mothers, right? And these huge changes, and we don't know what they mean in the long term, right? So with the Black Death, there are all the stresses and changes in labor that happen right away afterwards. And then there's the long-term effect, the long-term changes, right? The, the increased use of enslaved wet nurses who predominate in the record by 1400 is in part because of the economic changes, but it's also because of societal changes and ideas about what good childcare is and what good motherhood is. So Monica Green, who, as you know, is the most brilliant medieval historian, also one of the most generous scholars in the world, right, just recently sent me an email saying, you know, thank you so much for writing this article. I was just looking at it again because we don't we don't know what happened to women so much and their labor with the Black Death, right? We, we do have some incredible work. Someone called Judith Bennett wrote a long time ago about what's happening in 1400, that labor has changed in England, that women have their own businesses much more often than they used to, right? So there is some, but there's so much work left, left to do. And thinking about what the long-term effect of this was on women, on mothers, on families, on women's labor, that's really what I'm in the process of doing right now is I, I change these articles, work, rework and rethink these articles mm -hmm. into a book. Just a quick couple of follow-ups. One is, was that a path out of slavery for wet nurses at that time, so far as you could tell, or was it an intensification of, of slavery or, or neither? Maybe it's not binary. No, it, it's really both. So the, the, the article um, begins with an enslaved person who is told, whose master, master pays money to have a document drafted, promising her freedom in eight years. And he promises her freedom in, after eight years of breastfeeding multiple children of his, after she's already breastfed some of his children. And he only will give it to her if she doesn't do anything bad, right? So he lists like, you better not steal from me, my children better prosper, you know, all these things. So he's just so ambivalent. And if she she's gonna be freed, but the hope for wet nurses is, 
enslaved witnesses is that once they're freed, right, they'll be young enough that their masters will help them arrange a marriage, that they could have their own families, because they lose their children by and large, right? The children are given away or they're sold. And so, you know, to have a life, to have a free life, they, they need to get married and have a family. And that becomes less and less likely for them the older and older they get. Just a reminder to everyone you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today with Rebecca Weiner and Zoe Mandel, and we're talking about a number of different issues related to deep history of disease and how that connects to COVID-19. Just hearing about Professor Weiner's research. Zoe, let me come back to you and talk a little bit about the research you've been doing that's now been funded by a LePage grant. Um, somehow you're doing that alongside, have been doing that alongside your other work and preparation as a physical therapist, which I find deeply impressive. Talk to us a little bit about the course, the paper you wrote in the course, and then how that turned into a summer research experience. And I'm just going to let folks know, I'm going to put a link up as well. If you'd like to read more about uh, Zoe's project and the paper that came out of it, you'll be able to access that as well. Zoe, tell us about this work. Right. So I will actually just start by saying there's no way I could have done the whole project and going to grad school unless everything was online. That did afford me some time. So that is one sort of good thing about this whole Zoom school pandemic situation is I was able to do this work. I had a little bit of extra time where I could squeeze it in. Um, the project started out uh, as a class paper. That was a final project for Dr. Weiner's class on the Black Death. Um, I actually found a clickbait article about um, tribes in Madagascar getting the Black Plague in 20, as late as 2019, from a ritual dancing with their ancestors' remains. And I thought that was interesting, and it didn't seem completely true. Um, so I looked into it a little further. And what I actually found was um, there's a very complex mixture of colonialist medicine, medical literacy, and cultural boundaries within Madagascar today, as well as some ge geographical boundaries that kind of prevent people from being able to diagnose themselves with um, the Black Plague, and then also prevents them from getting help in time. And so what I kind of learned from that whole entire um, paper that I turned in as the final project was there's this idea of adherence and then an idea of compliance. Um, and compliance rather was a way of whether or not your patient wants to follow your advice as a doctor. The idea of, com uh, of adherence takes compliance and then says, okay, so yes, you want to follow your doctor's instructions, you're compliant, but for some reason you cannot follow the instructions that doesn't have to do with your, your willingness and that's adherence. So this idea that there's something else preventing you from following up on what is recommended to you. Um, and so then I was looking at, well, is that still relevant today? So obviously in Madagascar it is because there are outbreaks of the Black Plague due to a lack of adherence. They don't have the medical literacy or the resources or the trust even in their doctors to follow up when they have, you know, like a, a symptom. So then I decided to kind of take that 
the COVID route um, after I got this grant. So I decided to look at racism in medicine and history and specifically for the black population. Um, I knew there were disparities in the healthcare. I knew that there were historical disparities that persisted today. Um, I wanted to see how far the roots went really. So I started with, you know, the first interaction between um, explorers and black populations. Then I kind of look at, looked at um, the antebellum South and slave slavery. Um, excuse me. Um, so doctors and slave owners during that time made all of the decisions for their slaves. Um, there was no such thing as autonomy or informed consent. Um, there were a lot of horrific experiences for the slaves themselves um, and an alienation of their cultural ideas of medicine. Um, they were not allowed to perform anything on themselves. Um, they were always taken to a white doctor who did not have their best interests in mind and only listened to their slave owner. Um, after the antebellum era, I looked at how hospitals were still segregated um, with obvious differences in care. Um, there were differences in expertise. They would have students practice on black people and on slaves. Um, there were differences in treatment types. I mean, if you had a black patient, you wouldn't give them the same options for treatment as you would a white patient. Differences in time spent with patient and expenses dedicated to patients. Um, and of course, experimentation occurred. I mean, Dr. Sims is the father of modern gynecology and he did all of his experience experiments on black bodies without their consent or uh, um, they weren't able to make an informed decision rather because he didn't give them all of the information they needed. So a lot of what I learned in history is that we've been denying black bodies autonomy, informed consent, um, and basically ruined any sort of trust they might have had in a healthcare provider. So this is all still relevant today, of course, because it still exists today. Um, maybe we're not experimenting or um, denying people healthcare all the time, but there are still disparities in healthcare and insurance, and especially in research that persists today. And so really, I just trace back the roots to kind of find out how deep that went. And I found out it goes pretty deep. <laughs> so just to follow up on that for a second, Zoe, I mean, what are the implications of, of that? I ask this as a historian, I've already made up my own mind uh, that history matters in terms of understanding COVID and particularly in this issue of racial disparities and trying to explain the world we're seeing around us. But as a person who's, who was immersing yourself in that research in the middle of that, um, speak a little bit more if you can to that, to that relevance right now and how you take that and your, your classmates take that with you into medical education in the now. Right, absolutely. Um, the way I see it playing out now, like with me and my friends and our students, we know that there are disparities and we are starting to kind of figure out that they're there. Um, I hate to admit it, but I was watching TikTok and there is a video of a young woman in scrubs talking about medical school and she's dancing and it's really funny. And then she throws up a link to an article about how there are disparities in um, measures of lung capacity uh, attributed to race. Um, and so you look at that article and you see that, you know, if you have a black patient, uh, you're supposed to take their measurement and then add or subtract a certain score in order to account for their race, which, mm. you know, you obviously genetics and, and the environment are related, but not to the point where you are just allowed to blindly um, attribute something to race like that. 
And uh, Dorothy Roberts uh, of the University of Pennsylvania's law school actually spoke at Brown uh, about the way medicine is racialized and the way research incorrectly attributes disease to race rather than biology. Um, and so that's a major problem in healthcare is that the profiling happens that way and it does change the quality of treatment, it changes the diagnosis and it changes you know, whether a patient will have a good outcome. So as students, we're asking our professors and kind of highlighting the importance between, you know, is something attributed to a racial disparity or is it attributed to the actual race? And more often than not, it's actually the disparity rather than the race itself. So making that distinction uh, is really important for us as aspiring clinicians. I'm really impressed also that the those kinds of demands are being surfaced by the students. And that goes very much along the lines of what we've seen um, throughout this last year and up to today, um, that the educational system and the kinds of topics that we've inherited might not be up to the moment, particularly in the issue of understanding racial disparity. You know, Zoe, as you were talking, I was thinking back to a previous COVID calls that I had with Michael Udell and David Barnes. Um, Michael's a historian of public health and David's a historian of medicine. And uh, they're both based in Philadelphia. And Philadelphia is an extraordinary place to be doing this kind of research. The Philadelphia area, you know, thinking back to the various yellow fever epidemics of the 1790s and the ways that racism, what we would now call structural racism, you know, a, a society that had both free blacks and slaves and deeply racialized notions of who could get sick and why and who couldn't, um, that's deeply woven into the fabric of the history of Philadelphia. And I wonder, you know, Rebecca or Zoe, either one of you thought about this topic in light of what it's like to be seeing the pandemic play out there in Philadelphia with its own unique history. Rebecca, let me throw that to you first and then Zoe. So one of the things that Zoe and I discussed first was uh, another undergraduate student at Villanova, Jubilee Marshall had written uh, a fabulous paper that won the American Historical Society Prize for an undergraduate paper on um, efforts of free blacks to, and successful efforts to create their own cemetery early on in, in, in Pennsylvania, as well as um, the fact that there were all these assaults on it, right? So Zoe, um, I mean, in general, obviously, all of this is very present to us. Students are very involved in it, right? The Haverford students went on strike about not being able to be as actively involved in the protests, right, that, as they wanted to be and, 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 and were. Um, and students are incredibly important, but also, you know, you're talking about different professors and historians. And Zoe has said to me how much she appreciates right, her own professors in her classes you know, at, at Jefferson noting these issues about race and medicine. But there, there is, yes, this very long historical link that Zoe's talking about. So would you wanna say a little bit more about what Jubilee found in that paper that you used? Yeah, absolutely. So there was a, um, a part of my paper that discusses medical uh, education um, between black and white students of medicine. Um, and of course, there's a disparity there. So uh, there were very few colleges for black doctors, um, and there was very little funding for any college of medicine at that time. 
Um, and so what that meant was there was a short of, shortage of cadavers. Um, and you can imagine where I'm going with this. Um, Jubilee wrote a paper about Potter's Field in Philadelphia and how that used to be a prime place for people to uh, engage in illegal cadaver trade, which meant, you know, some body snatching and robbing graves. Um, and so what the black community of Philadelphia at that time did was they stationed guards um, around Potter's Field to protect their own space, protect their own bodies, um, and kind of preserve their autonomy that way. And so my link to the paper was discussing that autonomy of the black body, both before and after death. Um, and also, you know, noting that despite all of the um, disparities and the racism and the violence that they have faced, the black community has always been very resilient in, you know, protecting their space and their bodies that way. And the links with the University of Pennsylvania, right? Um, the medical school, right? Right. Um, yeah, so no, I mean, Scott, you're absolutely right. Philadelphia has a long history of these problems. And um, and so also Zoe's pro bono work in the clinic is particularly powerful and important. Although, I mean, Zoe, you've often told me that you wish there was more, right? That more was done. Well, just to follow up on that, Zoe, in terms of the, the curriculum you're looking at, how much space is there um, to kind of formally learn these kinds of lessons or do this, this kind of research? I mean, we've often thought again of a sort of sharp divide between, you know, things that are clinical and scientific and leading towards medical practice. And then those other things, those other classes that you take, Rebecca, close your ears, those other classes you take, get them out of the way so that you can actually get to the real, to the real science. What you're describing Zoe is a, is a much more blended approach to coming to understand the medicine that you practice is also grounded in historical inheritances. Right. So my my program at least does have a lot of um, kind of a well-rounded approach to treating the person as a whole rather than as a series of symptoms. Um, we have had psychosocial courses and we do discuss racial disparities um, as a part of our curriculum and our professors are very receptive to that. Um, the pro bono clinic is at Jefferson Methodist Hospital. It's very... Um, it's not new, it's, it's operating very small right now just because we do have um, COVID restrictions. We're only allowed a certain number of um, appointments per day and stuff like that. Um, but it is a very real world approach to, you know, teaching students that there are disparities in healthcare and there are cultural differences in how you would treat a patient who doesn't have the same background as you do, might not even have the, um, the same medical literacy as, you know, a typical patient, I say in air quotes, um, would. And so as uh, an aspiring clinician, you have to be able to account for that in real time. Um, and you have to be able to kind of address it without, um, you know, making the patient feel as though you don't trust them. You have to be able to reason through all of those differences and also make your treatment applicable to them so that they can adhere to it. Just want to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID Calls and talking today about deep histories of disease in the COVID-19 era, as well as racial inequality in treatment and understanding the history of medicine, but also what it means for us today. I'm talking to Rebecca Weiner and Zoe Mandel. Rebecca, um, just to come back again, let's go back to the Middle Ages for a second um, and talk a little bit about anti-Semitism uh, there and see if we can't trace that forward a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that? I know that's maybe not squarely in the center of your research, but I'm interested in 
in that, again, it's one of these resonances that we can see across time that's important for us to think with. Yeah, so this was a, a challenging but incredibly important topic to teach in the class. Um, so it's important because we have dozens, possibly hundreds of Jewish communities that are massacred during the Black Death. And they're, they're, I had always, you know, before I studied this, I thought, oh, well, are they massacred after? Are they massacred, you know, when the plague comes? Some of them are massacred in advance, right? There's this idea we will prevent the plague coming here by killing the Jewish community. And they're, the, the massacres grow um, out of, sometimes they happen in areas where there have been no man massacres, and sometimes they happen in areas where there have been many massacres already, right? They're, so the first um, whole massacres of Jewish communities start with the, the first crusade, right, which is preached in 1095, and then the massacres happen in 1096, as the crusaders are revving up, heading out, moving towards their attacks on the Muslims in the Middle East. And they decide that it's a good idea to kill the Jews first in some areas, right? And they, they exterminate them. And so this is a very painful topic, right? It's an perhaps even more painful topic for us now since we've had all these mass shootings, right? In Jewish community centers and Jewish centers that have, you know, there's really been a, a, a very terrifying amount of them, right? In from 2018 on with Pittsburgh, right? There's just been a series of these attacks. And so in that way, it, it absolutely resonates. And it resonates because the explanation so you can't be perfectly teleological and what happens in the Middle Ages is going to be different from what happens now. But terrifyingly, the kinds of explanations for these massacres that are given in the Middle Ages have some similarities sometimes with what these mass shooters explain about what they're doing, right? And with the kind of, um, you know, alt-right, anti-Semitic uh, ideas, it lies that are circulating on the internet. So in the Middle Ages, what happened was that um, there was a, cons a conspiracy theory, right? So there was this idea, and, and what's very, very disturbing is that, again, we want to think of that as a fringe idea, right? But un unfortunately, in our reality, right, with the Trump administration, what we've been living through, ideas that to, our, uh, to us were absurd, right? Like, of course, if a pandemic hit, you know, we would organize, right? We would all do what the scientists said. Right. And then we have this reality where that didn't happen, right? So um, that also makes what happened with them even scarier, right? And with QAnon, right? With the rhetoric of, of that party, it makes what they said in the Middle Ages even scarier. So there are different excuses that are given but what happens is we have things like an incomplete correspondence by a series of German-speaking officials, mayors, heads of castles, right, who are local areas, representatives of lords, who write to each other and try to convince each other that they should torture members of their Jewish community to get them to confess, right, um, that they have poisoned the air or poisoned the wells and therefore, that is why everyone is dying. And so we have this correspondence. It's translated into English, and I had the students read it. 
but you can't for the students it's 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 beyond crazy to just read this thing right so what we had to talk about and the students have incredible interest and incredible goodwill and we start with you know the mission of Villanova University right which is is part of what a historian does, which is to look empathically at the past, right? To to have real um, concern for the suffering of others. We start with that, and we also start with um, uh, the statements of Pope Francis the first, right? Um, who, in his uh, you know big statement in 2013, said, you know, it is not. This is not Christian, right? This is not Catholic. And we, you know, we approach our Jewish brethren with love and we decry the, any suffering that they occurred, you know, because of people who are claiming, you know, that this was Catholic. So we start with that, but it's still going to be painful, right? It's still going to be hard to see this and to see these officials who are writing to each other and they're saying, you know, we've proven that the Jews did it, right? So first the students are we're, we we learn that there's no way that this could have caused the Black Death, right? We we talk about the actual vectors and transmission of the Black Death, but then we see the evidence that they poured forward. And what happened was these officials systematically tortured members of the Jewish community and got them to confess, right? So that is also disturbing. Like, but they said they did it, right? So we also looked at things like the 2019 science article, The Confession, that explained why we have this real problem in our society today of innocent people who confess, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, the, and the psychology of that. So we talk about that. And then we also talk about torture because one thing that's really sad is that for people who have, have grown up after, um, you know, the President Bush in 2004, right, talked about what is torture and the president not being willing to say torture is completely out, right? Right. right. Um, we needed to talk about why the UN, you know, and, and international bodies condemn torture and why evidence extracted under torture is not reliable evidence, right? So we did all of that work and then we read these very difficult medieval sources. And then once we had done that, right, this could be processed, but it's very painful. The sources are very difficult and they say truly horrible things, right? They don't consider people who have converted from Judaism to Christianity to really be Christians. They consider them to be always Jewish because there's such a racist component to this, right? They don't think that Jews could get sick when they poison the water because they don't really think of Jews as human in the same way as Christians, right? These medieval sources. They think about a medical makeup of, of a person that a Jew would have a different makeup and therefore might have survived this. So it's really, um, there are a lot of different ways we have to approach and think about these sources and they're disturbing in so many ways. Thanks for going into that detail. Um, and Zoe, I want to bring you back in the conversation. You know, one of the things a lot of times, uh, and I, this happened with me in the pandemic, you know, people, if you study disasters, people rightfully, they want to know, well, what, what can we learn from the past to use right now? Like, like can, you, can we pull from that past as a way to save lives or as a way to prevent violence? And, and I'm completely um, sympathetic to that question. Um, but Rebecca points out it's not teleological. We, we can't, history doesn't really work that way. Um, the causality is not always so clear. But there's another use that 
Rebecca, you're describing, and you both talked about empathy in this conversation. I think that's important to highlight here that historical cases like the ones Rebecca's describing, Zoe, are sort of reservoirs of empathy. I mean, they're places in which we can watch humans struggle seemingly from a distance, but then that reaching across experience, at least for me, um, forces a broader reckoning, I think. You know, what sort of skills of empathy can we summon for people who died a long time ago? And then that is a way, I think, um, to lead to sort of addressing some of the issues you've been talking about, Zoe, that you're interested in um, as a student of medicine. So that's really more of a comment than a question, isn't it? But it, it's it strikes me that um, Rebecca was offering an opportunity as an educator, not only to learn that history, but also to connect across that, that distance. I wonder how, I don't, you don't have to speak for all the students in the class, but how, how that impacted you. Um, I would, I would say it was formative in my experience for sure. Um, you know, thinking about how all of these people suffered and how, it changed, you know, the makeup of their culture, of their religion in some cases, um, it had a very large impact. And also looking at, you know, what I was researching and how that has a long lasting impact. Um, I mean, specifically with racism in medicine, you see that there's evidence that says black people don't trust their doctors still. And there's a reason for that. It makes sense. Um, and so I think having that empathy, understanding where it comes from, and then having a way to build on it, you know, knowing that there isn't that trust and that you as a clinician have to bridge that gap. Um, as a person, even, you have to bridge that gap and you have to give them the resources they need, the information they need, um, all of the reasons to trust you. And, you know, you have to be there for them. And that's your job. We're almost up on time in this conversation today. I want to make sure before we leave it, um, Zoe, you can tell us about the, just say a little bit more about the outcome of your research last summer and where people can interact with it. Where can they find it? Um, yeah, it got published on the LePage Center um, website, which you can access through Villanova's website. And I believe the link was dropped in here as well. So you should be able to find it online. And the other thing is um, just the resilience and also, um, you know, of the, the different people that we study, right? So um, one of the things that's very interesting about the late Middle Ages is that even though there are these massacres with the Black Death, right, there's big massacres in Spain in 1391, there's a lot of scholarship about the vitality and resilience of Jewish communities afterwards as well. Like when you think, wow, you know, are they even really existing still? Are they really even still writing and thinking? And yes, they are. And, you know, Zoe and I have talked about um, things like, um, we, we were talking about um, something that Elizabeth Kolsky, the current head of the LePage Center mentioned at this wonderful LePage programming that's happening on decolonizing COVID right now, right? And um, decolonizing the curriculum and how she mentioned this, you know, SNL sketch, right? Of this idea that black people don't want the vaccine, right? Which is not right, right? Um, uh, Graham Mooney of um, Johns Hopkins was on and he was talking about how all surveys show that that's just inaccurate, right? So it's both addressing people's fears and also respecting their resilience and their strength and trying to reach out in both ways. Rebecca, are you going to teach this Black Death class again? 
Yes. And this time that I taught it, I made some changes, right? Clearly Zoe was very interested in Africa. And uh, initially um, I had sort of said, well, the research is, you know, still out and whatever. This time around, I um, I went to Smithsonian workshop and I brought in all these wonderful artifacts from this fabulous exhibit there. And I said, well, you know, we don't know everything, but this is what we know so far. And that was great. And the other big thing that's been happening is the Mongols have been accused of willfully spreading the Black Death, right? That kind of Orientalism. This time around, um, we have this wonderful article by Hannah Barker that debunks that. So we've talked about that. So yeah, I mean, right now with COVID, there's so many new, so much new research and so much fabulous conversation. I've got to teach it again, Scott, because it's just it's just getting more interesting to me, right? It is. Uh, it, it is getting more interesting. And I, and I do hope this is a moment in which the history of public health and the history of medicine and all the themes that you've been talking about, um, I, I think it got, it's got to go beyond something like students must be forced to do X. I think it's, you know, it's much more, Zoe, the way you've described it. Um, you found yourself in a class and then that raised a bunch of issues that were somehow really important to the other world that you're trying to make. Um, how we create those experiences can go well beyond a college classroom. They, they must if they're going to impact society more broadly. That to me seems like the next big question is how, and I want to, I want to close with this, um, you know, how, how would you like to see these kinds of discussions, like what we've been having, the kind of research you did, Zoe, how, how can that make its way into sort of broader discussion, do you think? It's a difficult question. Um, yeah. it's, I, I know, ask in earnest because a... I want to know. <laughs> like, how do we do it? <laughs> it's um, yeah, I did take a sociology course that kind of was like the introduction I had to racism. Excuse the sirens in the background. It is Philadelphia. Um, proof of your location. Middle of a city. Yep. Very loud. Um, uh, so yes, higher education. I did take, um, a sociology course that kind of was my foundation into racism. And my professor, um, actually said something during that course. He said, well, the thing is the people that need to take this course are not going to take it because it's an elective. And so that kind of, I don't want to mandate courses or no one wants a mandated course because then they wouldn't participate, but it's necessary to give a foundation to the students in higher education at the very least, you know, if not all levels, so that there's, you know, just a foundation of understanding from which meaningful discussion could be put forward. At least that's my idea of it. Rebecca, let me give you the last word on that. Um, huh. I mean, um, Zoe is undertaking this um, research assistantship with a professor in her current program who is talking about such issues so actually, can I give my last word to her on that maybe? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're looking at a lot of different factors that play into how your experiential learning changes who you are as a clinician. And a part of that definitely is the patient population that you work with. Um, and it's really similar to the pro bono experience that I'm also a part of where, you know, just exposure is really what gives that to you. Um, based on, you know, our foundations and psychosocial um, coursework that we've already completed. So again, just, I would reiterate the, nece the necessity of a foundation in such a course so that you can find what's important to you and then build on it. Just want to remind folks you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. 
And please join me tomorrow, be really special COVID calls discussion with New York Times Magazine writer John Mualem, and we'll be talking about his new book, This is Chance. He immersed himself in the history of the 1964 Alaska earthquake, and he'll be talking about that, and he'll be talking about social resilience in the face of disaster and connecting that to the pandemic. So please do join me for that tomorrow. And just really want to thank my guests today. I believe this is the last. I've been talking with the various different winners of the LePage grants and the chance to speak with um, uh, Zoe and Rebecca has been really important. I'm really glad I got a chance to talk to you about this about this work. Congratulations again on the grant. Thanks for your time today, Zoe Mandel and Rebecca Weiner. Thank you for having us. Yeah, really thank you so much. Thank you. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, 530.